Hello, I'm Derek McTravers and I'm here with Jonathan Wolfe, who's reading philosophy at University College London. Jonathan, why does Marx maintain the view in the German ideology that a person's identity is bound up with, or even constituted by, the need to produce things? I think to understand Marx, it's important to understand some of the philosophical background against which he was writing. And in particular, uh, to consider a question that Marx himself asked, which was, what makes human beings special? That is, what's the difference between human beings and other members of the animal kingdom? Philosophers throughout history have given all sorts of answers to this question. But one very important tradition, going all the way back to the ancient Greeks, is to think that what is special about human beings is that they're capable of thought, capable of consciousness. So human beings are special because they are thinking beings, and their prime relation to the world is that they can think about the world and conceptualize the world in various ways. This gives rise to a type of idealist tradition in which the mind or ideas are primary in our relation to the world. Opposed to that is a type of materialist position, which thinks that human beings are simply part of the natural world, part of the material world, like anything else in nature. That's one philosophical dispute. Another issue concerns how human beings interact with the world. That is, what is the direction of causation between human beings and the rest of the world? So on one view, human beings are very passive, that they simply receive information from the world. So we think about the world and perceive the world as it is. Another view is that human beings are active, uh, intervening in some ways in the world. Now, for Marx, all these views have something of the truth, but none of them have exactly the right truth. One view that he was very keen to argue against is the view that human beings are simply a product of their circumstances. On this view, human beings, being the product of their circumstances, are changeable by changes in their circumstances. So if you want to make people better, you just should put them in better circumstances. If you make the world a better place, people will be better people. So this is a view that Marx often is thought to hold. But his own view is much more complicated than that. His view is that we're not simply passive receivers from the world around us, but rather we create the world that has this effect on us. So human beings have a type of interaction with the world whereby by producing on the world, we change the world and we change ourselves at the same time. This, I think, is why productive activity is important for Marx. He wants to say, by thinking and acting on the world, we change the world, but we also change ourselves as we do that. We change ourselves by enriching our needs, enriching our concepts, enriching our capabilities. Having done that, we interact on the world again, and this changes us and changes the world once more. And I think this is why productive activity is so important to Marx. Right. Thank you very much. Um, man as a producer seems to be in some way bound up with Marx's concept of alienation. What do you think Marx meant by alienation? Well, alienation was a very common term used by thinkers and writers of that time. Marx, in particular, was influenced by Feuerbach's account of religious alienation. And this is an idea that can very easily be expressed. Feuerbach thought it wasn't the case that God made human beings in God's image. Rather, he inverted this and said that human beings had made God in 
human beings image this was put by ancient thinkers if triangles had a god it would have three sides that we project our own essence onto an imaginary being so in this way we become alienated from our essence which we project onto alien being of some sort so the basic idea of alienation is simply of things that belong together in Feuerbach's case human beings and their essence come apart in the case of religious alienation they come apart to such an extreme that we don't recognize these things as our essence and rather than enjoying them on earth we bow down and worship them how does marx use this idea when talking about for example the things that people produce well alienated labor is probably the most important form of alienation for marx particularly in his early writings and he distinguishes actually four different elements of alienated labor in the 1844 manuscript now called alienated labor where he discusses this and what he says is that first of all human beings are alienated from their product of production so what this means on the most simple level is that under capitalism workers produce goods which are taken away from them they produce goods which become the property of other people secondly they're alienated in their productive activity so the type of work they perform is alienating and here Marx has in mind modern production technique methods of production so the worker's life is reduced to a type of repetitive dull toil in which the worker is unable to find any type of meaning or unable to express their will or consciousness and this leads to his third claim that we are also alienated from our species essence i think this is very important indeed the idea for marx we've already seen is that we are essentially productive creatures this means that producing objects in the world is part of our essence as human beings and that we are able to create according to our will and consciousness in a very elaborate way but workers under capitalism marx thinks very rarely have the opportunity to express these powers so marx says from a human being the worker is reduced to an abstract activity and a stomach so rather than being a human being able to express our essence we are like little machines ourselves so that's the third thought we're alienated from our species essence and the fourth thought is a consequence of this that we are alienated from other human beings but i think the most important aspect of alienation for the young marx is something that is not explicitly stated in these texts but i think is there which is the idea that we human beings create a world which comes to dominate us so that everything we see around us all the social relations and material facts that we see around us are things that we human beings have collectively created yet we find ourselves oppressed by these objects we've created we become subservient to them dominated by them enslaved to our own products so a modern example is that of the city of london or the banking sector that the banking sector is something that we human beings have created we created it initially for our own convenience presumably but now even governments have to listen to the city of london because if the city threatens to lose confidence then there will be some sort of economic crisis so we human beings ordinary human beings become enslaved by something that we initially created for our own convenience this leads us on to a particular example of this that Marx discusses 
in another of his early essays on the Jewish question, where he describes the state as being an alienated entity. Could you just take us through that? Well, it's a very perplexing thought at first, because Marx says that the state is a form of alienation. And this is a very hard idea to understand, because it sounds like there's something missing in this sentence. But I think the way to understand this is on the model of religion being a form of alienation, or rather a form of fake community. Because one aspect for Marx of the human essence is that we are part of a community. We don't recognise this in our day-to-day lives. I mean, it's very striking how, in a way, individualistic our lives are under current societies. But you only need to stop and think for a moment about how, in the goods you enjoy in your daily life, how many people were involved in producing these, to realise how dependent you are on other human beings. Even in the simplest products, we're dependent on a huge number of people. We're part of an immense division of labour, but we don't recognise this. So we are part of a real community. Now Marx thinks only under communism will we enjoy the fact that we're members of a community. But this fact still exists under other forms of organisation. So Marx thinks at one time religion played the role of fake community for us. So rich and poor would pray together in church with the splitting up of people into different religions after the Protestant Reformation, Marx thought the church could no longer play the role of fake community because we we weren't all members of the same church. At this point, the modern political state comes into being. And I think Marx's view is at that point, the state takes on the role of fake community, that we think we're equal citizens, equal under the eyes of the law. And this gives us a type of realm of community Yet it's not genuine, true community. It's a fake community that we have under bourgeois society. So in bourgeois society, we have two identities, then. We have our identity as a citizen and our identity in what he calls civil society. That's exactly right. And our identity in civil society is our, as it were, real day-to-day existence where we might exploit each other, we'd be out for all we can get. At the level of the state... We are all equal citizens, equal in the eyes of the state. This is sham, in a way, because the laws and edicts at the level of the state often have very little effects on how people actually live their lives and what happens in the real world. And we can see this very clearly in our own situation in terms of equal pay for men and women. Because for more than 20 years now, we've had legislation saying there shouldn't be discrimination. It's illegal to discriminate on grounds of gender in terms of pay. But when you look at the statistics, women tend to be clustered around the bottom of salary grades. They don't get promoted in the same way. At the level of the state, men and women are equal. At the level of civil society, they're still very much unequal. So it's a type of sham equality, formal equality, equality in words alone. In your book, do you put this under the general heading of a critique of liberalism? Why is that? What would liberalism hold and why... Does Marx's view in this area undermine it or tend to undermine it? Well, my view on this, and I don't know if this is a universally shared view, but the paper on the Jewish question is probably the most important paper published of all the possible critiques of liberalism that have been given. It's maybe a surprising thing to hear that because it's such a hard paper to understand. But 
The key idea, I think, is a very deep idea, which Marx doesn't bring out as explicitly as he might. And that is that the liberal rights, rights to liberty, security, property, and so on, Marx says that these are all rights of separation. They separate you from your fellow being. So each one of these demarcates some sort of private sphere which gives you a protection from other human beings. Now, if you think that's important, you think that it is important that human beings should be protected from each other. So again, this is a very individualistic notion. It, it treats other human beings as a threat to you rather than a source of self-realization or a source of fulfillment. Another way of putting this is that, generally speaking, where there are rights, where people are only of a mind to assert that they have rights or want rights in cases of conflict, where there is no conflict, we don't think anyone needs to assert a right. So at the moment, for example, no one claims any rights over oxygen in the countryside because although it's absolutely vital to life, there are no disputes about who should get oxygen. But we could imagine circumstances in which oxygen becomes very scarce and then we might start thinking people have rights against each other. Because oxygen is scarce, there will be conflicts about how it might be used and we need to give people rights to resolve these conflicts. So if you think the task of political philosophy is to give people rights, and that is the primary task of political philosophy, it seems that you've already implicitly assumed a conflict model of society where people have interests against each other. Now that might be perfectly correct. I mean, this might just be what the human situation is. It might be that we are in conflict with each other and we are a threat to each other, as, say, Hobbes thought we were in the state of nature. But I think the important point to bring out is that this is an assumption and it needs to be defended. And there are other possible views. For example, one view of communism is that we will find realisation in other people's pleasure. So we will be essentially cooperative rather than essentially competitive. Could you just characterise what a liberal's take on the state and society would be, just so we can get a contrast between what Marx claims and what the liberal claims? Well... Liberalism isn't so much a view as a name for a very wide range of views. A liberal typically thinks that liberty is very important, that the state should exist in order to protect the liberties of the individual. Beyond that, there's a wide range of views about distributive justice, should we have more equality or less equality. But the key liberal claim, I think, or at least among contemporary liberals, is the thought that a liberal state is one which keeps its nose out of people's business, that there's a limit to how much the state may pry in individual lives. So this is often put these days in the following terms, that we all have our own individual conception of the good. And as long as following our conception of the good doesn't do any harm to anyone else, then the state should leave us alone. So the state should be neutral, at least between reasonable conceptions of the good, it's not the state's business to pronounce on how I live my life. So if this means that I choose to live it one way, perhaps I might be a very religious person, it's not for the state to cast judgment on that. Or if I'm an atheist, it's not for the state to cast judgment on that. If I decide to put certain substances into my body, 
as long as this doesn't harm anyone else, it's not for the state to pronounce on the rights or wrongs of doing this. So a liberal state is a neutral state. Now, neutrality is often contrasted with a view known as perfectionism, which isn't a very good term for it. But a perfectionist is someone who believes that some conceptions of the good are better than other conceptions of the good, first of all. Well, a lot of people will believe that. But also believes that the state has a role in promoting the superior conceptions of the good and reducing or eliminating entirely the inferior conceptions of the good. So if you think there is a good way that human beings can live their lives, or several good ways that human beings can live their lives, and one or many bad ways, and that the state should have some role in telling us which ways to live our life, then you will be a state perfectionist and not a liberal. And on those grounds, Marx is definitely a state perfectionist, that a non-alienated life, a cooperative life, a life where we enjoy communal relations with others, is a better one than a life which doesn't have these features. And it should be for the communist state, insofar as there is one, to encourage people to live according to these good perfectionist models of human nature. Kimlicker accuses Marx of being a perfectionist, in the sense that Marx has got a single-minded drive to eliminate alienated labour. And Kimlicker wants to say, well, why should we assume that this is the only good that people would want to pursue? Why can't people trade off, say, a little bit of alienated labour for various other goods, such as spending more time with their family or pursuing other leisure interests? Do you think Kimlicker's right about that, and do you think that there's a reply that Marxists could give to Kimlicker's point? Well, I think he would have to come up with some better examples than that if uh, he was going to make the point. Robert Nozick, the libertarian philosopher, has made this point in a very graphic way, and perhaps Kimlicker is picking up on this, that the contemporary way of talking about alienation or non-alienation is in terms of meaningful work. And so there are people who say they don't want to work for capitalism, they don't want to work for big companies, they want to do some sort of meaningful work. And so meaningful work could be thought of as a gloss on the idea of non-alienated work. And so it's often made as a complaint against capitalism that it doesn't offer enough meaningful work. Now Nozick says in reply to this, if meaningful work was more productive than unmeaningful work, then capitalism would certainly provide meaningful work because capitalism is only interested in making a profit. So we can take it for granted that meaningful work is less productive than unmeaningful work. So this means that each individual has to make a decision in their own lives about whether to carry out lower-paid meaningful work or higher-paid meaningless work. And put in these terms, it does seem right that the state shouldn't decide this for us. The state shouldn't outlaw meaningless high-paid work, because after all, some people might prefer to do that, if only for a short time or whatever. And of course, what we all want is meaningful high-paid work, but it's assumed that this is not going to be on offer or not to very many of us. Put in those terms, I think Kim Lucker is right, but I would also say that isn't a very good way of putting Marx's own concern, because Marx's concern wasn't whether people should be allowed to perform or required to perform meaningful work under capitalism. He was posing a choice between different types of social and economic system. So alienation can't just be identified with unhappy work, 
but a whole way of life. And it does seem rather perverse. I mean, it's like saying the state shouldn't make a judgment about whether its people should be happy or unhappy, because what about those people who want to be unhappy? We should leave it to individuals to decide whether they should be happy or unhappy. You say, well, let's create the conditions in which everyone can be happy if they choose, and if they then want to go off and be unhappy, that's up to them. But it doesn't seem right to say we should be, at the outset, neutral between happiness and unhappiness. So I think Marx would say it's wrong to think that we should be neutral from the outset between alienation and non-alienation. Jerry Cohn, as we'll see, just makes a similar point and says that Kimlicker and Marx just seem to have different conceptions of politics. That might be right. I think Kimlicker's writings on Marx has to be seen in the context of a general discussion of contemporary political philosophy. And so Kimlicker is less concerned with the project of rendering the true Marx than trying to think how elements from Marx's thought could be made to apply to contemporary political philosophy. I think what we learn is that this is not a very happy project. Right. Could you just briefly outline what you understand by historical materialism? Well, there are three main claims to historical materialism, and here I owe the exposition very much to Jerry Cohen's work. The first claim of historical materialism is that human productive power grows or tends to develop over history. So human society becomes increasingly productive, or at least has increasing capability for production over time. And this, Cohen calls rightly, I think, the development thesis. The second claim is that economic structures tend to rise and fall depending on whether they increase or frustrate the growth of human productive power. So an illustration of this would be that capitalism came about because it was at the time best able to preside over the development of technology. And on this very orthodox view of historical materialism, it will wither away to be replaced by something else when it can no longer develop the productive forces as well as some other economic structure might do. The third claim is the idea that the institutions of law and perhaps morality and politics exist in order to meet the needs of the economic structure. So in other words, to give an example, we have the laws we do, we have the political system we do, because this is in the interests of big business. And so the superstructure is explained by the economic structure. Those are, I think, are the essential three claims of historical materialism. Historical materialism, as you've described, it seems to involve a mode of explanation that is quite obviously problematic. To take the example you gave, you said capitalism exists because it develops the productive forces, and that explains something in terms of its effects. And that doesn't seem to make any more sense than saying things such as the alarm clock went off because it woke Fred up. What do you think is the the best way of getting around this? Well, I think this whole issue has become much more complicated than it needs to be. The question we have is, how can we say something comes into being in order to have an effect? I think the way to understand this is to use the analogy with evolutionary theory. That is, in evolutionary theory, we might say tigers have got stripes so they can hide in the grass. But we might press a question, that doesn't really explain how they got stripes, because after all, do we say God created 
tigers with stripes so they could hide in the long grass. Rather, we tell a different story now. We say that probably once upon a time there were creatures very like tigers that didn't have stripes, and through random genetic mutation, some developed stripes, and those with stripes managed to survive. Now, the reason why they managed to survive is that they could hide. So it is true that there's a sense in which they have stripes so they can hide. But they didn't get stripes in order to hide. They got stripes through random mutation. So I think the important distinction is the distinction between how things came about and the reasons why they persist. In evolutionary theory, we have two stories, random mutation and the survival of the fittest. We can tell the same story or the same combination of stories in relation to historical materialism as a way, I think, of understanding these functional claims. So when we ask why capitalism came about, we should say not it came about in order to develop the productive forces. Probably the reason it came about was that people are always trying out new relations of production as an experiment or perhaps not as a deliberate experiment. It just drifted into that type of economic structure from something else. So capitalist relations of production came about probably for entirely random reasons. Then we have a separate question, which is, why did it catch on and develop to the extent that it did? And there, I think, we can say it caught on because, quite literally, it was the fittest economic structure that was being tried at the time. That is, in competition with other types of economic structures, capitalism won. So now the question is, why did it win? And the Marxist answer has to be because it was best able to develop the productive forces. So capitalist economic structures beat out feudal economic structures because they were better able to preside over the development of the productive forces. And in the orthodox story, communist relations of production will eventually be better able to preside over the development of the productive forces than capitalist ones. And at that time, we will get a communist economic revolution, not a political revolution. I mean, this is not something that would happen overnight. We're not there yet. Maybe we'll never get there. But the prediction is that we will. And just to add one more point here, just as in evolutionary theory, the animals that survive are the ones who are better able to survive than those other animals that they're in competition with. You don't have to say they are the most perfectly adapted. Optimality is never required. All that's required is superiority. And the same thing is true, I think, in historical materialism. We shouldn't say capitalism was the very best able to develop the productive forces. Rather, of all the economic structures that were tried out, this was better than the competitors. Thanks, that's very interesting. Do you think it's surprising that philosophers who studied Marx should come up with different stories about how Marx's thought works? There is no text in which Marx set out his theory of history, or at least no detailed text. There are parts of the German ideology, quite clearly, where he sets out the beginnings of the theory. In some of the later writings, the 1859 preface, as it's come to be known, Marx summarised the theory in two or three pages. But he never wrote a book called My Theory of History. And if he had have done, perhaps there would be far less room for diverse interpretations. But in interpreting Marx on this question, as in any other question, people are looking at text written over 
perhaps 40 years, maybe even more than 40 years apart, and trying to get a coherent single doctrine out of someone who was a restless thinker, whose ideas were developing enormously during the period that he wrote. So it's not at all surprising that people can find diverging interpretations, and also not at all surprising that people can find Marx contradicting himself, because after all, most of us do this in the course of one article or book, never mind a career over 40 years. Jonathan Wolfe, thank you very much. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.